This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic, ranked number one in heart care 25 years in a row. Learn more at clevelandclinic.org care. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, September 4th. Today, Walmart steps into the gun debate, how a VA pathologist misdiagnosed thousands of cases, and drama unfolding in a dog park. Walmart announced that they would no longer be selling military-style assault weapon ammunition. And they would also not allow customers in open carry states to open carry in their stores. That's Taylor Telford. And I'm on the breaking news business team. Before, they had about 20% of the ammunition market. But now that they don't sell the military-style ammunition anymore, they will probably only have about 6 to 9% of that market, according to their estimates. At the same time, this new ban by Walmart on open carry will affect most of the country. Because there are actually only three states that don't allow open carry in any capacity, plus the district. And what did Walmart say about why they're doing this? Well, they've been facing a ton of pressure and protests because over the summer there have been two pretty high-profile shooting incidents. One of them was in El Paso, where a white supremacist killed 20 people and wounded dozens more. And then very shortly after that, there was another incident in Mississippi where two people were killed and a former employee was involved. And so ever since then, they have been facing a huge amount of public pressure. Uh, Forty employees, white-collar employees, walked off the job in California in recent weeks to protest their gun policies and basically arguing that the company is not doing enough when there are shootings happening in stores to prevent that from happening to customers, to employees, and also to recognize their role in gun control. Because there was an argument to be made that Issues like whether customers can openly carry weapons in their store is not just a political issue, but truly a safety issue for their employees and for their customers. Exactly. And so now that they have announced that they are putting these restrictions on guns in their stores, what has the reaction been? So the reaction has been pretty mixed, depending on where you fall in this debate. Uh, The NRA disavowed them very quickly yesterday after the announcement. But there has been a lot of positive reception from customers and from other retailers. And shortly after their announcement, Kroger came forward and said that they would also be stopping the open carry policy in any of their stores in open carry states. And actually, there have been other retailers to make this move recently. Target, Chipotle, Starbucks all don't allow open carry in their stores in open carry states. So there is a precedent for this, but a lot of people are thinking that because Walmart and Kroger are two of the biggest companies in the country, they're the two biggest grocers together, and Walmart on its own is one of the biggest retailers, that they hold a lot of power to be able to make these changes in a way that even the government cannot. What is the thinking behind barring people from carrying a gun openly, but still allowing them to come into these stores uh, a gun that is concealed? I think that Walmart and other companies like Target or Chipotle see this as an 
easier entry point. It's really what they have to work with. Concealed carry is a lot more cemented. It's across all 50 states uh, with licensing. And so there's not a lot of flexibility in ways that they could try and keep customers from doing that. Whereas open carry, they do have that kind of purview to say, all right, we would really rather you not do that here for the sake of safety. What do you think it says that you have these private companies taking action on gun reform in ways that go beyond what federal and state laws say? We've seen in the past year or so a real influx of companies trying to use moral alignment as part of their brand identity. Uh, so, for instance, Dix was kind of one of the first companies to take a stand in this regard. In the wake Dick's of the sporting goods, sure, they said that they weren't going to be selling. Dix said that they were going to stop selling military-style weapons and bump stocks in the wake of Parkland. And since then, they've gone a lot further. They did a trial period in 2018 where they completely took guns out of ten of their stores. Then they replaced the gun sections with merchandise that was targeted to the local area, and those stores outperformed all of the other stores. And so now they've moved into a kind of expanded trial period where they have pulled guns out of 125 of their stores, and it's too early for them to say how that's going yet. But the CEO came out and said that he didn't really care about what the financial implications of this were because he thought that it was so essential in the wake of Parkland to take a stand and make sure that if someone wanted to commit that kind of atrocity, they couldn't do it with something that came from dicks. And I think that overall, we've seen a wave of companies deciding that they want to integrate stances on political issues, be it immigration or be it gun control, into their identity as a company. And people respond really strongly to that. I think that customers have shown a tendency to prefer one company over the other when the maybe one company reflects their values better. I also think that part of this is because these companies are receiving so much pressure from the public because people who are concerned about guns are realizing that that at least for now, it doesn't seem like anything is going to happen on a legislative level to change people's access to guns and that their kind of last resort in many of these situations is to go to the companies themselves and say, please don't sell guns there. Please don't allow guns inside your store. And that is their one remaining option to kind of place a lot of pressure as a consumer. Exactly. And when you really look at it, a lot of the policies that these stores already have, these stores that do sell guns, are tighter than a lot of existing laws, depending on where you are. Walmart already doesn't sell guns to people who are under the age of 21. They used to sell at 18, and they upped the age after Parkland, as Dix did, as also Kroger did. They require you to have a background check. They haven't sold handguns anywhere except Alaska since the 1990s, and another facet of their announcement yesterday is that they will now no longer sell handguns in Alaska. And they haven't sold assault weapons since 2015. So when you look at it, they already have much more stringent requirements when it comes to gun reform than a lot of states do. Taylor Telford is a business reporter at The Post.
Robert Morris Levy was a highly trained pathologist who practiced for 12 years at the Department of Veterans Affairs in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Dr. Levy, on three separate occasions, to three separate patients, went into their medical records and entered inaccurate and misleading diagnoses. He was indicted by federal prosecutors in late August on three counts of involuntary manslaughter and a raft of other charges. The 2M2B that he used allowed him to receive the feeling of intoxication, but it would not, uh, it would not show up on, a, uh, on any type of urinalysis test. I'm Lisa Rhine, and I write about the federal government. That includes the Department of Veteran Affairs and its network of hospitals and healthcare facilities. There are so many uh, hospitals out in the out in the country where the real treatment and care of veterans happens. And I noticed a press release from the Fayetteville Medical Center. This was in June of 2018, where they said that a doctor had been impaired and that they were doing a review of 34,000 cases that he had read. And I remember thinking, wow, that sounds like a really important story that I should get to. And I was working on other stories. And then a source of mine said to me, you know, that case of the pathologist in Fayetteville, Arkansas, there are going to be criminal charges pretty soon. And you might want to look at this. And so I decided to go down to Arkansas. You know, and there's no telling uh, how many people he really killed. I mean, he really he killed them. You know, and I'm sure to God he's not been able to. There were 12 years during which there were so many mistakes and missteps that had happened in the case. And when prosecutors say that the reason that he caused these people's deaths was because he was impaired, like what does that mean? What are we what are we what are we talking about here? So Levy was an addict and he was addicted to alcohol. That's what I've learned from prosecutors and investigators. And this went on for years and years, and uh, he had had several DUI charges even before he arrived at VA. He was sent to rehab after a, a very traumatic incident where he was so drunk that his supervisors forced him to take a blood alcohol test. Mm. This was in VA's own hospital. His blood alcohol level was 0.4. And for people who are Whoa. listening to this... That's a lot. That's almost comatose. Arkansas's legal level to drink is, is 0.08. Right after that, the chief physician at, at the Fayetteville VA sent Levy to rehab. Came back from rehab, and he had to submit to regular blood and alcohol test. He was returned to clinical duty, reading slides. But the complaints kept coming in. We would later learn that he kept misdiagnosing veterans. And what he was doing when he came back from rehab, he was a very smart man, and he devised a way to fool his supervisors. He took this substance called 2M2B, 2-methyl-2-butanol. It's a very, very lethal substance that was historically used as an anesthetic. And what this substance does is it gives you an incredible high, but its presence can't be detected on a regular blood and alcohol test that VA was giving him. So that's why, really, he was able to fool VA for so long but even before this happened, there were many, many warning signs that VA, I discovered in my reporting, should have, should have found. What were the warning signs that were missed that allowed this person to continue practicing for so long? 
there were employees in the pathology lab. Levy supervised about 100 people. And the employees kept going to their supervisors over the years and saying, you know, he's drunk, he's he's speaking nonsense, he can't walk steadily, his eyes are bloodshot. And partly because he, you know, he didn't see patients, right? So pathologists have huge power because they're the people who diagnose illnesses and monitor illnesses, you know, with the certainty of a microscope, but they don't actually have face-to-face interaction with patients. So in the cases of a lot of these patients, it was like another doctor would come in, take a maybe a blood test or a sample of some sort, send it to the pathologist who is this doctor, and then he would inspect it and report back. That's right. So, so a veteran would come in to see his primary care doctor or an ENT, let's say in the case of someone I met who had ended up with throat cancer, or in some cases it was an oncologist. But what happens in all of these cases at both private hospitals and at VA is they do a biopsy uh, or it's a tissue sample or they do a fluid sample. And then that gets sent to the lab where a pathologist reads the slides. So what happened was that Levy was probably not every day, but on so many occasions over a period of 12 years between 2005 and 2017, when his clinical privileges were finally revoked, he was making errors. And VA had a really lacking peer review system for its pathologists, where they were supposed to review samples of each other's work 10% a month, just to make sure that there were no errors. And what Levy did was when his deputy found that he had made errors, since he was the chief pathologist, he altered the records. And he had the ability to go back in and change what had been written about him. That's right. It seems like that shouldn't be part of the peer review process. Right. Levy was the boss, and VA at the time had no oversight system to say, wow, we only have two pathologists. Let's make sure that we have somebody else to check on these peer reviews. VA says they've now changed that system, and they do have oversight in these cases. But this went on for 12 years. So if this doctor was at this hospital for 12 years, and he was looking at tests for a lot of different people. 34,000 cases. In what ways did the fact that he was impaired and not performing his job properly, how did that affect people's outcomes? I met veterans who had, you know, esophageal cancer that wasn't diagnosed. I spoke to one veteran who now lives in Iowa whose prostate cancer was not diagnosed for six more years because when he went to VA in Fayetteville and Levy read his slide, the biopsy came back negative and his doctor said, you know, you'll be good, Jerry, you'll be good for for 10 years. Mm. And over six years, Jerry had aches and pains. Finally, he got a call from VA a year ago saying we made a mistake and he by then had stage four prostate cancer. So many of these cases were instances in which if these people's cancer had been caught early, then then it could have been eliminated or bigger steps could have been taken. But by the time that they figured out that this mistake had been made many years ago, they had late stage cancer. That's it. Because, I mean, we all know that it's a race against time to diagnose cancer. So that was really the problem is that these veterans lost valuable, valuable time because of the misdiagnoses. I'm curious about why some of these patients were at this hospital in the first place. Because it seems like For a lot of veterans, they have a really strong relationship with 
the VA hospital with the doctors there. And that for them, it's it's a real point of pride to be getting their health care there. That's right. And many, many veterans say that they like going to VA because VA speaks their language. I trust the military or trusted the military because it's a military atmosphere. I talk their language. I mean, uh, their acronyms. You know, airborne, people know what airborne means, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, the medical people, you're around the veterans. So I interviewed a wonderful veteran named Daryl Darner, and he was a parachuter in Special Forces in the Army. And Daryl is 73, and he went to VA for a biopsy for a funny-looking um, lesion on, his, on the side of his nose three years ago. And his primary care doctor said, you know, this looks cancerous, I'm worried. And Levy biopsied his lesion, and it came back negative. And then finally, in June of 2018, when VA went public, Darner uh, discovered that his biopsy had actually been misread. So he then saw a doctor outside the system, an oncologist. And as soon as she walked in the room, she said, well, you got cancer. And I said, what? And has had two reconstructive surgeries. And By this time, his cancer had spread to stage four. They had to go deep, deep into his sinus cavity because the cancer had spread there. Uh, They sent me to another doctor that put me in the hospital and did the surgery twice and uh, with the 17 stitches inside the nose and here, and he built a flap over my nose uh, with my face. So now I'm growing hair on my nose, but it turned out to be about the size of a quarter they took out. My nose had a pretty good size. Yeah. Because it had went in. It had been in there so long, it went in my nose and up my sinuses. Daryl has pockmarks on his nose, and it's, it's, very, it's still quite painful for him. He's also a leader in the VFW, and he calls himself the policeman because after this case broke, you know, he was the person. He was getting 10 calls a day from veterans asking him, where do I go? What do I do? What if my slide was read wrong? And Daryl asked Daryl, you know, do, do you still trust VA with your care? And he was very thoughtful about it. He said, you know— They had a bad apple, and he's very unhappy with what happened in this case. But he also says, you know, I have to watch them. But he said, I'm not leaving VA. He said, but what I'm doing is I'm, I'm kind of doing half and half now. I see that I have to be my own advocate. And so if I want another opinion, I'm going to go to a private doctor. And is VA doing anything to help these people, or are some of them considering legal action against VA for the fact that they missed all these warning signs that this person shouldn't have been in charge of looking at their tests? Sure. So what happened is that at the town hall meetings, which were very raw and emotional events, you can imagine, and, and, you know, the, the VA leaders had to sort of stand up and apologize on the one hand, and at the same time kind of, I think, protect their own liability on the other hand. And it was really a challenge for them. They gave the veterans and and in some cases their attorneys these forms that basically enabled them to file a tort claim against the federal government, against VA. And that's what many of them are doing, and they're waiting for an offer of a settlement. And after six months, the way the law works is if he hasn't offered them settlements, they're allowed to sue in federal court. There have not been any lawsuits filed yet. Uh, I expect there will be. When you look at this, do you think that this is ultimately the case of one very bad apple that went by undetected? Or do you feel like this speaks to larger systemic issues with the VA healthcare system and, and how it works? I think it's the, it is the ultimate question. I, and I think it's an alchemy of both. 
every healthcare system, and, and VA is the largest healthcare system in the country, is going to have problem doctors. But at VA, in part because it's the government and the government moves slowly, in this case, there was a passivity to how they responded. And, you know, Levy's error rate kept coming up as zero. And the chief doctor at the at the hospital in Fayetteville didn't see this. It did not set off an alarm for him. And it also took VA months and months and months to, to initiate its review of 34,000 cases. I wanted to do this story to wake people up, you know, to say, we have to do better. And sometimes if you don't have reporting on a case like this, stuff like this can happen again. Lisa Ryan reports on the federal government for The Washington Post. And now, one more thing. My name is Jessica Contrera, and I have been reporting on what I think might be now the most high-profile, dramatic dog park in the country. Last summer, in this place called Chevy Chase Village, Maryland, which is this super wealthy community right outside of D.C., they decided to build a dog park. Hi, Brady. Brady's a big golden doodle. And they spent $130,000 to renovate this little patch of land. So the, the dogs came to the park. And that's Louie, French bulldog. And the dogs barked at the park. And that was immediately a problem. Soon after, about a month after the park had been open, there were these flyers that had been hung up in the park, and they said, no excessive barking. And then the police started showing up at the park because they were getting calls about the barking almost every single day. It's just chaos. And so in May, the village board in Chevy Chase decides to have a public hearing about what to do about the dog bark. We have a public hearing on the dog park. The head of the board, the woman who's the chair of the board, her name's Alyssa Leonard. All we're doing tonight is hearing what everyone has to say. We have a packet of letters. She's a lovely lady. She has a dog named Pippa. And her husband just happens to be the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell. We have a gentleman that likes raising interest rates in the Fed. So this is Chevy Chase Village, I guess. On every side, there are rich and powerful people who you might know. So at this meeting, the audience is filled with people who either are pro-dog park. My dog wants to thank you from the bottom of his heart. Well, he loves the dog park. If I say, do you want to go to the dog park? He practically jumps through our ceiling. Or very, very anti-dog park. I've really begun to dislike being outside of my house or having my windows open. 
if you listen to one side, the park is this total noise fest where the dogs are barking incessantly and the owners don't care. And on the other side, you know, from the dog lover's perspective, this little patch of land has become this unique, beautiful community gathering spot where people bring their dogs and the dogs play. And if there are any, you know, bad dogs, everybody knows who the bad dogs are and they ask them to leave, according to some. (laughs) We do appreciate the monitors who are trying to to work on it, but they policing themselves have actually said, well, we spoke to this person with a certain standard poodle whose name shall be withheld, constantly barking, and we asked them to stop. So they just come at a different time. I know who the poodle is, but I'm not telling. (laughs) We're not against dogs or people socializing. We're just saying it has become a nuisance because it's overused. So after this May meeting, they decided to remove the dog park from Google Maps so that fewer people know about the dog park. And then by the June meeting... For the record, my name is Christina Souders, and I want to thank you all so much for having me. They have hired an outside observer who has a master's in epidemiology to go to the park on a regular basis and observe its goings-on. So I wanted to start a little bit on the usage of the park. Um, We had a total of 44 observations of 30-minute intervals. So she goes there 54 times and observes the barking, whether or not people are parking on the street, and other various issues. Um, In terms of dogs relieving themselves on Quincy Street, the issue um, identified was that people who parked on Quincy Street would let their dogs out of the vehicles and they might immediately relieve themselves on the grassy areas. Thank you. And thank you, Shana, for arranging um, this presentation. So now, What's going to happen is they're going to have this final meeting where they will decide the fate of the dog park. And everybody is expecting to show up. I don't think they're allowed to bring their dogs, but I'm guessing there's going to be some rebels. So one option is to restrict the hours more, even though they've already tried that. But what a lot of people think is going to happen is they're going to take down the fence and the dog park is going to become just a park. You know, I thought this was the most divisive dog park in the country right now, but then I got a lot of emails from people about the fight over the dog park in their town. So apparently, if you build a dog park, be careful where you put it. Jessica Contrera is a reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. We heard some nice things on Twitter about our episode on Monday, Sadie Dingfelder's story about discovering that she has face blindness. One of those tweets came from Dean H., who said, quote, Thanks so much for being open and genuine about your experience. Helped me today. You're not alone. One of the 2% weird here, too. Stay weird, Dean H. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.